have a Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 1. Now, I don't know if you noticed, if, if you're new to our church, welcome, by the way. Welcome, my name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're really glad that you're here. You have connect cards either on your seats or in the seat back in front of you, and if you're new, would you let us know you're here this morning? Fill that out, and there are offering boxes as you leave, put those in there. But we've been meandering our way through the book of Luke, and against all odds, we covered one chapter in two weeks. So we are now bursting forth a year into this, into chapter 8. But we're going to start in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there, uh, there are Bibles in front of you if you want to flip around with us, or you can pay attention to the screens. We'll put everything uh, up on there. But I want to remind you of something we looked at last year. Luke chapter 1. And this is typically, these are the kind of things we read around Christmas time. But there is a story here that Luke sets up that is pretty good. We read about a man named Zechariah. Uh, he and his wife Elizabeth. We read about them. Verse chapter, uh, verse 5 of chapter 1. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of that beginning with an A. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the Lord's sight, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old, which is, these folks should not prime candidates for child rearing. However, when Zechariah is in the temple, he receives a visit from an angel and the angel says, hey, guess what? Against all odds, you uh, are going to have a child. Uh, technically your wife is going to have a child. And uh, this child isn't just any child. This is going to be the forerunner of the promised Messiah. Zechariah asks, verse 18 uh, of chapter 1, Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife, oh my goodness, she's well along in years. The angel said to him, and you never want to hear this from an angel, look, dude, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. So, Elizabeth got two pieces of good news that day. Right? (laughs) Good news number one, she was going to have a kid. Good news number two, her husband could not speak for the next nine months. Now... So we, we, we read about this guy named Zechariah, who is a man, he is a priest, uh, and he is older. Then we meet a young lady who's a peasant named Mary, and she receives a visitation from an angel too. Go, if you would, to uh, verse 34. The angel shows up to Mary. Now Mary is 12, 13 tops. She's betrothed. As soon as a, a young lady would hit puberty, they get betrothed to be married. And, um, and so she's 11, 12, 13, very, very young. An angel appears to her and announces, hey, just so you know, uh, you're going to give birth to Messiah, who will sit on the throne of David forever. Mary, verse 34, asks a different kind of question than Zechariah. Zechariah says, well, how am I going to know this is true? Mary's going to ask, how exactly is this going to work? Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. 
And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month of pregnancy, for no word from God will ever, ever fail. Now Mary has this beautiful answer. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So what Luke does in the first chapter, Tavia, listen, you had your time. Okay, there's no need to keep... It's my turn. I wrote this. Not this, Bible, I mean the sermon. I didn't mean... No, no, let me be clear. Let me be clear. <laughs> Lightning. All right. Let's just stand over here. So, so, hello. So, what you have in the earliest chapter of Luke is you have two angels. Well, the same angel visiting two people. The, 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 the first person is an older guy who's a priest, and the second person is a younger woman who's a peasant. Who is it that responds with appropriate faith? The young peasant girl, not the old priestly guy. Now, God still uses both and blesses both, but it's an interesting dynamic. Luke does this all the time. He sets up contrasts between people that you would expect would get it and people who end up uh, getting it who you never would expect would get it. And so all of this sets up a dynamic I want to look at in Luke chapter 8. But before you go there, go to Luke 6. I want to remind you of a group of people we met called the Twelve. Jesus had a very large contingent of disciples always traveling with him. And we read about a subgroup of that called the Twelve, a highly symbolic number, verse 12 of chapter 6. One of those days, Jesus went out on the mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. So it's a larger number than just 12. But out of that large group, he chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles or commissioned ones or sent ones is what the word means. So out of this larger group, he commissions 12 to be his official sort of representatives. Now, the number 12, of course, is highly, highly symbolic in the Jewish universe. That was the number of tribes of Israel. And at this point in Israel's story, Israel's in exile, the tribes are scattered, and so Jesus, very symbolically, we've talked about this before, is regathering uh, and reconstituting and renewing in Israel around himself. But we meet, for the first time, a subgroup of disciples called the Twelve. Now, I want to introduce you to another subgroup. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. So we, we meet the Twelve, and then, and then kind of per Luke's custom, we meet this other group that's a little bit surprising. It's not surprising that the Twelve were men, but then we meet a group, uh, and I'll show you verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town. Now, the after this, we saw this last week, was a... Was, uh, was another contrast. Here is a Pharisee who's a man called Simon. Here's an unnamed sinful woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet. He's, Luke is always doing these contrasts. So the, the Pharisee should get it, one of the religious leaders, and he doesn't. The woman should not, but she does, and it, and it just extravagantly pours out worship at the feet of Jesus. So after this, Jesus traveled from town to town proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve, capital T, so that's that subgroup, were with him. And also some, what? Women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. How'd you like to have that as kind of your Wikipedia entry in the Bible? Are you the one that had seven demons? Are you the Mary? Because there are lots of Marys. Are you the seven demon Mary? Yeah. From whom seven demons had come out, jo- Joanna, the wife of, what do you think? What should we call him? 
Who's a? Who's a? Do you know? No, but you say it confidently. So we'll go with you. Joanna, the wife of Chuza, according to this young man here in the front row, who is the manager of Herod's household. We'll talk about that in a second. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, this is one of those passages where you just kind of read it and it really sets up something called the parable of the sower we're going to look at next week. But there's something here that's incredibly significant that Luke draws your attention to. And it's not the fact that there were women that were supporting the disciples. It's the fact that out of the larger group of disciples, Luke identifies two groups. The twelve and then the women. Now these women had been healed of various diseases or demons. And and it says that the twelve and the women were with him. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot to us, but... This is Luke's way of saying they were following Jesus around as disciples. And again, doesn't sound like much to us, but in the first century, it was not uncommon to have women supporting religious men. That happened. But what was utterly staggering was that you would never have women detached from their men following another man around and traveling with a group of men from place to place. This was absolutely, utterly scandalous. So Luke tells us three things about these women. First thing is that they were disciples. And there's no hierarchy here. It's the twelve and the women. I love it. And, and they were, just as they were with him. At this point, discipleship to Jesus just meant following him around, watching him do stuff. So you have the twelve and you have the women. And secondly, we read that the women were supporting the community. Now, this is beautiful for a couple of reasons. Number one, we've read that the men, at least the 12, had to abandon their jobs to follow Jesus, right? So you have Peter abandoning his fishing vocation. You have a tax collector leaving his tax booth. So what they've done as men is they've put their families in jeopardy to go ahead and follow Jesus. They weren't economically doing, you know, producing anything. And so the second thing we find out about these ladies is that they were financially supporting this small community traveling around together. So it was scandalous, not because they were supporting the community. Again, women would support religious men. But it was that they were going around together as some sort of new community. That was the thing that was so staggering. You would, you would instantly, you, I, can't, I can't get us back into first century mindset clear enough to appreciate how interesting this would have been. When Jesus is traveling from town to town and it's not just a bunch of guys with him. We meet three women by name. Luke says there are many others. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons. Now, whenever a woman is listed without reference to a man, we can safely assume that either she's divorced, she's widowed, she was never married. And you can imagine seven demons would not promote marriage opportunities, right? I mean, one demon would be enough, but seven evidently was a significant issue. And so she gets healed and follows Jesus. Then we meet a woman named Joanna. Now she is the wife of Herod's household manager. Now give me two minutes on this, because I want you to feel how big a deal this would have been, all right? In the beginning of Luke, 
we meet a guy named Herod the Great. He was the king over Israel and Palestine at that time. Herod dies, and that kingdom is split into three parts and given to three of his sons. Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus. Archelaus was so nasty that Joseph and Mary take Jesus into Egypt to get away from him. And when they come back, they come to a different region, Nazareth. Nazareth was run by a guy named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas wasn't incredibly popular with Jesus because in the story, Herod Antipas had just murdered John the Baptist, cut his head off. All right? Herod Antipas had also built a city called Tiberias in the Galilee, the region Jesus was now living in, and that was built on a cemetery which was totally defiling to a Jewish audience. In other words, he builds this big, brand new Gentile Roman city on a cemetery. He can't populate it with Galileans because they won't, to, to be around a seminary is to come into contact with the dead so they're unclean. So he has to import a whole bunch of non-Jewish people to live in the city. Horribly offensive. We then meet, in Luke's account, the wife of the dude who ran all of the money that came through that territory. How big a deal is it that a woman from that secular Herodian social strata is now hanging out with a woman who had seven demons cast out of her, and they're hanging out with a bunch of peasants following a male rabbi named Jesus. How many layers of scandal is there in that? If you're one of the peasants with Jesus, you can't stand Joanna. Because she represents the oppression, the defilement, the injustice forced upon the Jewish people. And if you're friends of Joanna, living in Tiberias, you're going, what in the world? I mean, how much did it cost to have the wife of one of Herod's lead officials following this Jesus? So we assume that she had some money, and evidently she may have been one of the main supporters. But I don't want you to miss, in a, in a series of verses that you could just skip by, the utterly revolutionary Jesus, bringing people together that have no business being together, the seven demons cast out of woman, and the woman from the Herodian circle. And being so compelling that these women are to leave their own households and to follow Jesus. Now, in the first century, there was male space and there was female space, right? The world was ordered and there were places for men and places for women. The home was female space. The world, the public, that was male space. In the home, you would have two rooms. The front room was male space because it was the public room. And the back room was female space. So what these women had done is they'd wandered out of female space and they were just walking around in male space, assuming Jesus was just fine. And evidently he was. So in a bunch of verses, you meet a group called the women. And the reason they're worthy of mention is because it would have been pretty scandalous to have them tagging around with Jesus. And we meet women that are supporting the community, which is a preview of what will happen in the book of Acts when the rich people share everything so there are no needy people among the community. 
And then thirdly, they embody in microcosm what's about to happen everywhere, which is people that have nothing to do with each other in normal society are bonded together around this Jesus. Now, this thread of the women gets carried forward. Go if you would to Luke chapter 10. Go to Luke chapter 10. And ladies, this is one of the most misused verses in the history of the world to make you feel guilty. I'm about to set you free. Seriously, this story, it is so not about being busy. This is Mary and Martha. Oh my goodness. Wait till you see what what Luke's doing here. Verse 38, Luke chapter 10. So, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. So, when you read Jesus and his disciples, who is that? The twelve and the women and other people. Right? So he's got a whole large crew going with him. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, this text is usually used to look at women and to say, hey ladies, you're too busy. You just needed to sit sit at the feet of Jesus, all right? Be like Mary, not like Martha, okay? Just stop. This is so not what the text is saying. It's saying something far more beautiful than that. First of all, where would Jesus be sitting in the home? Male space or female space? Male space, front room. As a woman, where was Martha? Female space. Where was Mary? Male space. And what was she doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he said. You know, that exact phrase is used to describe Paul sitting at the feet of his Pharisee teacher as a disciple. In other words, what Mary had done was violate the social custom of the day in order to sit in male space with the men at the feet of Jesus as a disciple. That's the reason Mary so, or Martha so offended. It's not just, hey, well, who's going to cook dinner with me? It's she stepped out from where she belongs. And not only does Jesus affirm Mary's right to be there, he then rebukes Martha implicitly. Look, many things can be done, but Mary's chosen what is better. Now, this isn't a story about whether or not you're busy. This is a story about the revolutionary Jesus who welcomes women where they were not welcomed in that world. Make sense? See, this thread of the women becomes really significant towards the end of Jesus' life. Go to Luke chapter 23. You're sitting here thinking, well, I'm a dude. I don't really... I mean, what's, what's relevant about reading about the women? First of all, you came from one. 
I don't know. I just wanted to make that joke. I have nothing else to say. <laughs> Luke chapter 23. Hey, college kids, what are you doing after this? Yeah, that's right. And who's doing you a favor? I am. Luke 23, verse 44. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he'd said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts. That that means they were in extreme anguish. They beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including who? The women who had followed him from Galilee. Okay? Now, where are the other disciples at this point? We're not quite sure. But the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. One of the questions you have to ask is, hey, if Luke wasn't there, where did he get all the information? Well, the ladies were there. So I think what you're getting is some of the eyewitness testimony of the named women. Then we read about a man named Joseph of Arimathea who who, uh, volunteers to take the body. Verse 55 The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So you have the women witnessing the crucifixion. You have the women witnessing the burial. And then, chapter 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So who are the first eyewitnesses to the fact the tomb was empty? The women. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Now how do we know what the angel said? This is what the ladies told Luke. He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in the Galilee. So, the angel quotes at the women a piece of teaching that was given to the disciples in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. Alright, so Judas now, no longer with the twelve, They go back to tell the dudes. Now what are the dudes doing? Hiding. They went back to tell the eleven. It was Mary Magdalene. Oh, we met her. Joanna. Mary, the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, let's talk about why you would not believe the women. All right, now, it could have simply been, hey, risen from the dead was too ridiculous to believe. Certainly that was some of it. But much has been made of the fact that in the first century, women were not considered 
trustworthy eyewitnesses of things. In fact, in court, they were not allowed to testify unless a male from their family line validated their testimony. Josephus, Jewish historian writing in service of Rome, said women were not eligible to testify in Jewish courts because of the levity and impetuosity of their sex. The woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to man. The law doesn't say that. The law begins with male and female created in the image of God equally. But Josephus evidently missed that part. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for humiliation, but that she might be directed. It wasn't that women were inferior in the sense we mean. It was just that they weren't very rational. That was the thinking. For the authority has been given to God by God to the man. Women were thought to be less rational. This is one historian. Women were thought to be less rational than men, more easily swayed by emotion, more readily influenced, all too prone to jump to conclusions without thoughtful consideration. In general, women were thought by educated men to be gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasy and excessive religious practice. In fact, one of the critics of early Christianity was a guy named Celsus. We don't have his criticism, but we have copies of it, or or portions of it, quoted by a guy named Origen in a book he wrote called Against Celsus. So Celsus wrote this critique of Christianity. Origen responded, and in his response quoted some of the stuff that Celsus had written. Here's one of the things Celsus had said. After death, Jesus purportedly rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? An hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. In other words, it was considered a knock against the truthfulness of Christianity that women were the first ones to see the empty tomb. Now this, oddly enough, is one of the reasons why I actually trust the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Because if you're making something up you don't include things that are embarrassing to your cause. Amen? So, in a patriarchal culture where women's testimony was worthless, you have women witnessing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And they're the ones who go tell the guys. Does that help you make the case? No! It's actually a knock against you. So the only reason you'd include it was that it really did happen. It's no surprise then that when you get to the book of Acts, which is Luke part 2, flip over there, Acts chapter 1. It's no surprise that the women were still involved. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. So they had to choose another apostle to replace Judas. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women. Now, do you notice how often we just kind of skip over that tag and think, hey, well, the dudes are really the center of the story. Well, when you start noticing, there's a lot there. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with his brothers, Now, we know what happens next. They're praying, the Holy Spirit descends, and they begin to speak in other languages. Jerusalem was full of people from all over the empire, speaking a lot of different languages. 
So the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they hear these Galilean peasants now speaking all of these languages. And they think, ah, they're drunk. Come on. Peter gets up. Imagine the first sermon you have to give is, here's why I'm not drunk by Peter. (laughs) Right? His first argument is, hey, it's nine in the morning. But a second argument is a bit more persuasive. And it's what you're witnessing is what was promised about the age to come in the book of Joel. Flip over to Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter says, nope, we're not drunk. What you're seeing is evidence that the age to come is now breaking in among us. And he quotes a passage from Joel. And notice verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now, anytime you talk about women in the church, you immediately open up a hornet's nest of questions. Right? Well, can women preach? And and can women be pastors? And can women be elders? And the church, as we are so often to do, we just love to argue and divide over these sorts of issues. And there are important issues, and I have all sorts of opinions on them. And even in our room, people would disagree with each other. But we're not in 1 Timothy today. We're in the book of Luke. So we're not going to answer those questions. What we are going to do, no, that's not a dodge. That's not a dodge. No way. What we are going to do is we're actually going to pray that the Spirit would fill our ladies and anoint them with the full flowering of gifting and inheritance that God has for them. So that's what we're going to do. That's straight out of the text. So what I want you to do in a moment is if you're here and you are female and you know who you are, (laughs) I'm going to have you stand up and we're going to pray over you. Now, if you are a man attached to one of these ladies, you are allowed to hold her hand or put a hand on her shoulder. If you are not, do not. I mean, I can, see, I can see a single dude going, you know, no one's praying for you, young lady, here. I want to just pray for your anointing, you know? I mean, you just, no. But it, it just felt so in the spirit of the text to pause over this section, to note how it is fascinating that, that this was included against all customs of the day, And how it is that even when Peter addressing the crowd said it was to men and to women that the Spirit would be poured out. So ladies, I want you just to stand up right where you are. And we're just going to pray over you. We believe. We believe that you receive. Oh man, there's a lot. (laughs) We believe that we receive the Holy Spirit when we become born from above. There isn't more Holy Spirit out there for us to have. But, Paul does say in the book of Ephesians to be continually filled with the Spirit that you already have. And so I'm going to pray for the Spirit's filling of you. And and I want to do it in a way that doesn't cause us to worry about the bigger questions. I just want to bless you. Because the Spirit has been poured out on you for you. This church would be impoverished without you. There is room for you at the feet of Jesus. And if Jesus were here, 
he would say, do not let that be taken from you. Do you understand? So close your eyes. Brothers, join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mighty God, we pray in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that you would release your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon our sisters. That you would pour out gifts all over them and ministry all over them and that they too would testify to the reality of your resurrection and your goodness. That they would take their rightful place at your feet as disciples, recognizing, Father God, the great ministry that sits before them. And Father, we pray against the enemy and we pray against all of the cultural lies that are leveled against our sisters about their worth and their beauty, their significance and their identity. We come against them in the power of Jesus' name and we pray, Holy Spirit, you would release them to believe that they are image bearers, they are daughters, they are children of the mighty God who made them They are decreed to be works of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you in advance have planned for them to do. And so, Father, we come against anything that would tell them otherwise. Holy Spirit, come and bless them. Encourage them. Strengthen them. Teach them and guide them and lead them and protect them. And all the brothers... Say with one voice, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat.